You're listening to Amphibicast. Hey, what's up, everyone? Thanks for joining me for episode five. And tonight's episode is going to be kind of focused on a hot topic. Now, this is one of those topics that is very, very hotly debated, and it's often considered kind of a taboo subject when it comes to amphibians in the hobby, and honestly, the the captive husbandry of many species in, in exotics, I guess you could say. Uh, the subject is cohabbing, and cohabbing is essentially a shortened version of the term cohabitation. Specifically, cohabitation is the mixing or grouping of different species, or sometimes even individuals of the same species, in the same enclosure. The goal is usually to have a multi-species enclosure that mimics a specific or perceived specific biome where two or more species will occur together in the wild. Usually it's done for a few reasons. Oftentimes it's done as a display to create a very, very elaborate display vivarium. Sometimes it's just done for other reasons. Um, sometimes people just for convenience, they want to stick to animals together in the same enclosure. Other people, you know, they the, the list of reasons runs the gambit. Now, outright though, I'm going to admit that I am not a fan of cohabbing, and I can say from personal experience that is not a method of keeping that I recommend. And I'm based that on a few things. Uh, number one, multi-species enclosures have the potential to cause undue stress to one or more inhabitants. Two, there's too great of a risk when it comes to the spread of disease and pathogens between individuals. And three, cohabitation ultimately compromises the more specific and finer husbandry points that each species involved needs. Now, to start with the topic of stress, if we read through any medical or veterinary text, we will inevitably see that stress is an extremely detrimental factor to all living things, especially in captivity. Stress can ultimately lead to poor physical and behavioral health and overall failure to thrive. Stress is often a direct result of cohabitation and it is well supported by the literature. Now, for example... From Mater's Reptile and Amphibian Medicine and Surgery, 3rd edition. If you guys don't have this book, it's a bit pricey, but I purchased it. I, I read the whole thing. It, it's a very good read. Um, unfortunately, there isn't a tremendous amount of material on amphibians, but a lot of the reptile and amphibian um, topics do somewhat overlap. So if you, can, if you do have access to it and you've got a couple extra bucks, it is a good read. But... To get back on topic, um, in terms of cohabitation, I'm going to quote, Psychological stress can be induced by inappropriate social housing. When kept together in captivity, many solitary or non-colonial animals display some degree of social dominance and territoriality, which may lead to stress. Unquote. So there it is. I cannot argue 100% that this is the case in every single situation. But... This should be enough to encourage keepers to house different species and, when appropriate, individuals of the same species separately. Now, as I said earlier, there is a behavioral component to stress. However, we may not always notice these behaviors unless we're really looking at them with a trained eye. Just because stress-related behaviors are not always noticed by a human eye does not necessarily mean that they're not present and causing serious or some, some form of harm among the inhabitants. It's very easy to say, well, I see my animals getting along, so they must be fine. But this is not always the case, and it's not always overt aggression 
fighting, and competition that we should be looking for. Oftentimes, a stressful situation can be subtle, and it's not easily observed. Now, compound that with the addition of spatial limitations, as in a vivarium, and we can see that stress can become a significant factor. Now, here's an example that I like to use to illustrate how non-lethal behaviors in a small space can cause stress. Now, what do I mean by non-lethal behaviors? Well, obviously, if you were to put two living things in the same spot and they attacked each other violently and killed each other, right off the bat, you know that that's a bad situation. But it doesn't always take lethal force to cause another inhabitant to decompensate due to stress. Now, this is kind of a long example, but just bear with me because I think that it really will put it into perspective. Now, imagine you, the listener, imagine you're in your home and you're sitting on a nice couch and you're reading a book or you're looking at your phone, you're listening to my podcast, whatever it is that you're doing. You're completely comfortable, you've eaten a good meal and you feel very relaxed. Now, you look up from your your book or your phone or your, whatever and you notice that there's a stranger staring in at you through your window. Just staring. No overt threats are being made. The person isn't saying anything or moving. The person doesn't have a weapon or anything like that. The person is just staring. Now, I, for one, would feel... (laughs) I'd be extremely freaked out by this. And even though no immediate harm has come to me, I would still feel extremely distressed and confused by the situation. Now, what do I do? What does anyone do? Do I run away? Do I confront this individual? Do I call the authorities? What do I do? However, even though I'm afraid, and this is a very, you know, a very stressful situation, at the very least, I have the option of leaving that situation that I find so uncomfortable. I can always leave my house or my apartment or wherever, and I can, I can run. I can go elsewhere. Now, take away your ability to leave the house. Do you see where I'm going with this? And imagine the situation repeating itself over and over every day. The stranger never leaves and he or she never stops staring at you through that window. Over a short time, you might feel reluctant to spend any time at all in that room out of fear, so you retreat to a much less comfortable spot in your home. Say it's a, a hot attic or a damp basement, and it's uncomfortable there, but at least you're avoiding the stranger that is causing you stress. You can't leave the house after all now, but at least that person is outside and not in there with you. And in this case, despite the stressor, you still have some figurative means of escape, so to speak. Now, let's add another dynamic. The stranger is now in the house with you, and you have no means of leaving the house. Every door and every window is locked, and you're alone now in this home with someone that you know nothing about, and that person essentially follows you around and stares at you all day and all night. To you, this might be a living nightmare, and I know for for me, I'm <laughs> I'm not a particularly uh, social person. I'm actually a very paranoid person, but this would be a living nightmare for me. But the question is, if you're in this situation, how do you call for help, so to speak? And will anyone else notice what's going on, and will they intervene on your behalf? And furthermore, how do you explain to someone that this person hasn't actually hurt you, but is still causing you harm? Well, let's consider that. Now, imagine a third person outside the house looking in at the two of you. He or she might assume that there's nothing wrong. Say, for example, uh, this person is a neighbor. And let's just say the neighbor is Mrs. Jones. And Mrs. Jones 
walks by your home every evening, maybe walking her dog, jogging, whatever. And she looks in on you from time to time, but she doesn't see anything obvious going on. She doesn't see any violent behavior or signs of conflict. She just sees two people in the same house. And for all she knows, there's nothing wrong whatsoever. Now, here's where the problem lies. On a personal level, I, for one, would have, like I said, serious issues with having to share my food, my space with this person that made me feel extremely uncomfortable because he or she was intimidating me. Now, in all likelihood, I, 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 hope, you would, <laughs> I hope you would feel the same as I do. And over time, that stress may become unbearable. You might stop eating properly. You might stop sleeping properly. You might not sleep at all at night due to the stress of this new intruder. And over time, you might feel physically sick and exhausted from this perpetual sense of vigilance. You're constantly on the defensive. You're constantly on the lookout because you don't know when this person is going to approach you and start staring at you. And to make matters worse, this stranger might even stake out a spot in your kitchen and limit access to your food. You might go for, you know, a uh, a sandwich in the fridge, and this person just stands right in the front of the fridge and stares at you until you say, all right, well, maybe I don't want this sandwich bad enough to have to deal with this, and you walk away. That person might hang out in your bedroom at night. You wouldn't be able to sleep because this person is in your bedroom, occupying the same space, staring at you. Now, obviously, this is just an example, and obviously, two humans could communicate with each other instead of being silent, as they are in my example. But imagine they couldn't, and for some reason, they might feel completely powerless. Now, it's almost like being in a horror movie. Well, well, that's kind of the idea. And not all trauma is overtly violent and physical. If you watch any movie about a stalker or a psychological thriller, like think like a Hitchcock movie or, or something like that, that can be more frightening to the viewer than something like a bloodbath. I mean, I remember watching horror movies where it was just all blood and guts, and I, you know, it, it didn't frighten me the same way as if a character was psychologically frightening. Well, to end this example, uh, imagine you're that person. Imagine you're Mrs. Jones or, or Mr. Jo- or whomever. You're that person who jogs past that house every day, and you look in for a few minutes, and for all you know, everything's fine. The two people in the house, they're not fighting. They're not killing each other. They're not rolling on the ground with, you know, you know, throwing each other, uh, you know, a a serious beatdown. Well, obviously, unless you're really, really paying attention and you've studied their behavior and you know what to look for, you might not have a clue that something is wrong. And this is two humans, two members of the same species. So as an observer, you might not necessarily realize that One of those people in that situation is not getting sleep at night, losing weight, looks terrible because you don't really know what to look for. And this is not to disparage any keepers and this is not to accuse anyone, new advanced keepers, etc., whatever, of not knowing. But the fact is, none of us are actually staring at our animals 24 hours a day and if you pop in to feed an animal and you spend maybe 15 minutes, it's, I mean, I, I, I spend at least at least an hour, two hours a day in my frog room. But even then, a lot of it's maintenance and feeding and whatnot, and I'm not always necessarily in tune with every little behavior that every frog that I have is, is, is doing. I know that I have to look for certain things. That's not to say that I completely ignore it, but... For some keepers, you might not necessarily realize that you have to pay that little extra bit of, well, not a little bit, but you have to pay that 
significant amount of extra attention just to see if there's trouble in the enclosure. Now, imagine it, like I said, just from the animal's point of view, you're not in the wild, you have no means of escape, and you may have to compete for food or resources with another animal that is potentially threatening to you. You don't have the space to avoid a stressful situation, and most likely you're going to feel constantly alert to that fact. Now, some exotics, unfortunately, will tolerate poor conditions for a long time before they succumb, and this is bad for many reasons. However, we need to consider that amphibians are on the whole not as forgiving when it comes to husbandry mistakes when compared to, say, many species of reptiles. And this is by no means an attempt to disparage reptiles or reptile keepers or anything like that, but amphibians are on the whole much more, much more fragile. And I've seen cases where uh, ball pythons, for example, and bearded dragons, I've seen some very, very sick and neglected animals at a very advanced state, and they may have endured like that for a long time, months or years, etc. And that's a horrific thing. This is by no means a defense of that. It's sad when that happens. I think that that is abuse, but you're not going to get a frog to tolerate months and months and months of poor conditions. It, it's just, it's not going to happen. So, on the whole, we have to be on the lookout for any potential situation that could cause our animal to deteriorate faster than you know we can we can control the situation and repair it. Now, I know that many of us have heard examples of sudden death or, or a very, very sad demise of what we otherwise perceive to be a very healthy and active animal. This can happen for many reasons, obviously, and some of them may be completely beyond our control. Think things happen. But the easiest part of the equation for a hobbyist to control is how the animal's kept and who it's kept with, or more importantly, who it's not kept with. Now, obviously, in a captive situation, we strive to create an environment that closely replicates the inhabitant's natural environment. However, we must remember that no matter what we do, the environment we provide will always be captive, and the inhabitant or inhabitants therefore have no means of avoiding stressors and pressures that they would normally deal with in a real-world situation. So by adding stressors into that situation where a primary inhabitant has limited resources, you are creating uh, you know, a potentially stressful and you know, potentially dangerous situation. I mean, like I said in my example, a frog outside in its, in its legit natural environment can move several feet away, several yards away, etc., whatever. You know, just because it encounters another animal in its environment doesn't necessarily mean that it wants to encounter it or it's going to tolerate encountering it. But it's going to have a tremendous amount of additional space, resources, etc., that it's going to be able to avoid these pressures. And when you have a captive situation, you always have to remember that you've eliminated that. Yes, people have massive enclosures and there are display enclosures and whatnot. And, and I, I get it. I understand that there are, there are exceptions and... The thing is, though, those exceptions are exactly what they are. They're, they're exceptions. And when you have a viv that is very, very well planned and very well thought out and very, very well monitored, yes, I can concede that that would be a situation where it would be possible. Again, I still am kind of averse, for, averse to it. And 
my attitude towards many things is just because you can do it doesn't mean you should. But again, it's it's just a matter of personal preference. But let's go on to another point here. And this is one of the things that I think lulls people into a, a point of a false sense of security. And again, this has to do also with behavioral stressors. Now, it's very easy to anthropomorphize an animal's behavior and assume that the behaviors are normal because that's behaviors that a human would do. Now, here's a primary example. Let's just say, for example, we have two animals sitting in the same water dish. For argument's sake, let's just say we have a uh, a gray tree frog, uh, which is H versicolor, or I think it might be D, uh, D versicolor now. I think it might be uh, Dryophytes uh, versicolor. And so we have a white tree frog. Uh, they also, I think, they go by green tree frog. They go by dumpies, but the scientific name is Latoria uh, carulia. And say we have them in the same enclosure. Now we have the two of them soaking, and they may look cute together. And we may be quick to assume, all right, they're they're buddies. They're hanging out in the same water dish. They get along, and somehow they've made friends. Well, despite what we think, the odds are that they're not necessarily cooperating by sharing a resource. And in actuality, they may be competing for it. Now, both animals have a need for that water dish, and they are essentially competing for it every time they meet in it. Now, combine the stress of competition with the fact that a white tree frog may be double the size of a gray tree frog, and again, you have an additional stressful situation. In this case, you have a competition for a resource, i.e. water, and you have a potential fear of predation, or actual predation, if a larger frog consumes the smaller frog. Now, think back to my example. All right, you're going to take a bath and you get into your bathtub and you realize that there's another species in there with you that might freak you out. I mean, I've seen people panic if there's a spider in the bathroom. Imagine that, you know, again, just because you have two frogs doesn't necessarily mean that they're ready to sit there and get along together. They're going to kind of want to make use of that resource. But again, they might possibly they might tolerate each other and possibly they might not. There could be a lot going on there that we don't necessarily see. Well, to get back on topic, in a closed environment, neither individual can back away or leave to find another water source. They're stuck in there with that one water source. Again, potential for a stressful situation. So we have to be aware of what we might overlook, and looks can often be deceiving. Just because they look like they're getting along doesn't necessarily mean that they are. And again, to go back to my example of taking a bath and you walk in there and there's a spider in the tub with you, to all my invert people out there, uh, um, <laughs> I know it's a bad example. I love inverts. I have seven tarantulas. I'm not the one who freaks out, but I figured I'd pick an example that people might identify with. Um, let's just say it's something else. Say it's a hippo. All right. Um, <laughs> all right. Now... Here's another issue. Both of these frogs come from a different part of the world and they require, uh, on a basic level, we'll say similar but different care. Now, let's consider the environments now. And by this, I want to consider the external environment of the terrarium but also the internal environment of each frog. Well, what do I mean by that? And this was getting kind of onto point number two that there's always a risk of pathogens and disease that can be passed back and forth between species. Now, usually when you have uh, an infection that will jump species, it's often time that the second species that's not necessarily accustomed to that infection 
has a very more severe reaction to it. And don't get me wrong, there are plenty of infections that are common among all species of frogs. But there are some nuances, things like parasites, etc. I mean, if you're going to take an animal from one section of the world and intermingle it with something from another, remember, they would never have contact at all without human interference. I mean, yes, we can go from where we live to another part of the globe realistically within a day, but on the whole, animals aren't necessarily adapted to cohabitate on a very, very simple level when it comes to pathogens with other animals in other parts of the world. So let's get back to that internal environment. And by this, I mean all the naturally occurring microorganisms and parasites, etc., that occur in each species. Now, for all intents and purposes, every living thing with a digestive tract has gut bacteria and parasites that constitute their own ecosystem. Many of these microbes are, in fact, beneficial or benign. Uh, People take probiotics. We need to have intestinal flora to help us, you know, maintain our digestive health. Now, this is all assuming that they're in their normal host. And given the unique nature of each species' internal environments, there's always the possibility for trouble when the two meet via direct or indirect contact. So if we take these microorganisms, bacteria, parasites, etc., and we expose another species whose body might not necessarily be able to handle them, we have another situation where the species might suffer adverse effects or health. The vivarium is not a sterile place by any means, but even under rigorous quarantines, there's going to be the potential for the exchange of pathogens. Now, notice I said potential. Quarantine obviously is the ideal way to prevent cross-contamination and to ascertain the health and treat, uh, excuse me, ascertain the health and to treat any new acquisition. However, we're not going to sterilize them completely. It would ultimately, uh, excuse me, it would ultimately be unhealthy for the animal anyway. Now. Even under optimal circumstances, when no pathogens were passed back and forth between the two species, when we add stress into the mix, that might act as a catalyst that causes an overabundance of a certain parasite that is already native to its normal host. Stress compromises immune systems. It's it's a fact. And under stressful conditions, an animal's own immune system may weaken and it may succumb to a pathogen that it wouldn't normally, uh, it would normally be able to fight off. We see it even in human beings. When you have an immune system that's compromised, you are susceptible to more opportunistic types of infections. Um, years ago, the term was red leg, which now we know is not, it's not a general term. It can be attributed to um, a certain number of bacterial infections, but it was generally considered a sign of poor stress and poor husbandry in amphibians. And it's, um, I haven't seen it as often as I had 20, 30 years ago when people had a much poorer grasp of how to keep amphibians in a captive situation as best as they could. But again, it's, it's generally considered to be a potentially opportunistic type of infection that is something that in all likelihood, an organism that had good health, had good husbandry, might be able to fight off. So, just backing up again, obviously stress compromises immune systems, and as as the literature shows, an organism may shed additional, say, for example, shed additional parasitic ova excessively during times of stress. 
the stress of shipping or capture or any of these types of situations can cause an increase in an organism's parasitic load, and said parasites may then pass to the other more dominant animal, causing health issues in it as well. So if you have an animal that's stressed and it's it's shedding parasites in abundance, and if you, uh, you know, I'm not a microbiologist by any means, but if you even do the most rudimentary research into how microorganisms and parasites work, there's a number of different ways. Some of them have intermediate hosts and whatever, but their goal is essentially to reproduce. And some points, some parasites will actually forfeit one organism in that cycle just to further their own life cycle. Most parasites don't want to kill the host organism, but in certain cases they can and they will depending on, you know, but, uh, but that's, that's a whole other discussion. But, um, Moving on from that, I mean, that should all be fairly self-evident that when you have an opportunity for stress, and this applies to any living thing, that's going to cause issues with whatever microorganisms that are present in that situation and it might be present inside the animal itself. So let's move on from things that we might not necessarily be able to see with our eyes, but behaviors that we can change. Now, This is effectively point number three. These are the nuances of husbandry. This is creating an environment for our animals that we can hopefully, to the best of our abilities, um, maintain as the optimal environment. Now, let's just say that two species occupy the same environment. Well, they might not necessarily occupy it at the same time and at the same in the same parts. They might have different needs on a smaller scale, and as such, they might require different microclimes within that terrarium that might not be consistent with the care of an, of a second organism. Let's just say, for example, we want to create a North American pond biome, which is generally very popular. And let's just say that we want to cohabitate a tiger salamander and, and a bullfrog, an American bullfrog. So we set up our 40 breeder, and we have a half land, half water ratio. Uh, you know, we have our little a little paludarium, and we incorporate some lights and a few highs, etc. And we assume, since the enclosure looks like what we perceive a pond's edge, it's suitable for both species. Well, no. In reality, recreating a biome such as a pond in captivity is essentially, it's a gargantuan task if we consider all that goes into it. Yes, tiger salamanders and bullfrogs may make use of it, but not necessarily at the same time and for the same reasons. They both appreciate different microclimes, and they may have different natural histories. Just because they occur near the same pond on a given day does not necessarily mean that they should be cohabbed together, and the pond biome that we work so hard to build is therefore a poor choice to house these species together. And, I mean, realistically, a 40... I just... I I sort of arbitrarily picked a size, but um, a 40 breeder in and of itself is a poor choice for housing a bullfrog anyway because of their their activity level, and if you can appreciate the fact that, think of it with, think of it with two other species, let's just, let's eliminate amphibians from the equation for a minute, but, you know, just because you see a sunfish and a great blue heron at the same pond doesn't necessarily mean that you should put them together either. So it's very easy to fall into a, a false sense of security that, because we're cohabbing similar animals, yes, they're both amphibians, that it's a good idea. It's often not because the husbandry needs of a bullfrog and a tiger salamander, 
have the potential to be very, very different. There's there's temperature differences. There is uh, cycling, etc. They're not the same species, and I'm sure people are going to argue and whatnot. And look, I, I I respect people's opinions and whatnot. And under the right circumstances, things can work. But I want this to serve an example that if you have two relatively large amphibians in a relatively small enclosure, there could be a tremendous potential for things to go wrong. So let's just say that the aforementioned setup isn't right. All right, well, what do we do? Do we go larger? Do we find two more closely compatible animals? Well, let's consider that. Now, how big do we need to get and what species do we need to consider when we want to create a situation where we can have them cohabitate together? Well, that's a loaded question. I don't have a magic ratio, and I doubt that most hobbyists do either. I think that it's another part of why cohabbing is so often frowned upon. It's just that there's not a tremendous amount of information out there, and I, for one, like to err on the side of caution. Yes, it's possible that a very large enclosure with similar species could work, but can an average person replicate that to scale and manage it effectively? Now, again, this is not to disparage experienced keepers who do this, and to people who are not necessarily as experienced or people who are beginners or, or intermediate, whatever, bear in mind, a tremendous amount of effort went into maintaining that. And oftentimes there are issues where they don't work. Having a, you know, a 200, 300-gallon, 300 400-gallon vivarium, it still is going to take some serious observation on your part to make sure that everything in there is going, you know, in a copacetic way. So is it possible? Yes. Realistically, anything is possible. But you're not necessarily going to do this in your house with a 55-gallon tank. It's not going to happen. You're not going to have success cohabbing two species for a long time. And yes, people do it. And yes, people can argue that, well, I've had these two animals together for 15 years. They've gotten along. Yes, there are exceptions. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're happy. You can live in the same house with someone for 20 or 30 years and not necessarily like them and get along with them. I don't like to anthropomorphize. You know, I know I kind of gave a little, little diatribe about anthropomorphism, but it's very easy to say, well, they're getting along, so everything is is fine. And as we've kind of, you know explore that issue, we realize that it's not the case. Now, another thing I won't argue is, yes, elaborate multi-species vivariums, they are impressive. But by the end of the day, when we build an enclosure for the sole purpose of housing different species together, it's very easy to overlook the functional and healthy aspects of husbandry in favor of the aesthetic. And that always has the potential to put our animals at risk. So, Whenever we do a build, we should always be considering whose needs does it suit. Are we suiting our needs or are we suiting our animals' needs? And that is ultimately the all-important question that I think people need to consider when it comes to the care of any other living thing. So, again, a little bit of a, you know, a contentious topic. I'm sure people are going to have differences of opinion. I always respect differences of opinion, but for what it's worth, this is my stance on it. So... 